and talking to our friends. Hellboy Book Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Strachan. <laughs> Yay! Welcome back, Matt. Matt, you're Thanks back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, here I am. Hey, so how did the con go this weekend? It was great. It was very exciting. Uh, it's still going today and tomorrow. I may actually go back. But for the first day, being on a Friday, the place was packed. Right. Um, Denver Pop Culture Con is a family-focused event. And so... See, that's fun. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really fun to see, like, they have whole sections just for kids that are educational. That's cool. Yeah, and so, like, a lot of the celebrities that show up will go over there, and the kids just flip out. It's really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. See, the yeah, thing, a good time. cons can be so exhausting, though. Like, for me, I'll, I'll go oh, yeah. and I'll, I'll do a couple things. And I'll be like, all right, I'm just, <laughs> I'm done with this whole, oh, I, this I, whole shebang. I love going to cons, especially when I, when I get to cosplay. It's just so much fun. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean by it can be exhausting, but I can also be so much fun. It's so exhausting. I can't, yeah. I get tired of it real fast, right. <laughs> real quick. For me, it just all depends on who they have there. Who are the attractions or what what kind of events they have going on. John's always trying to get me to do the, uh, get an artist table at the con. And I'm like, no, God, no. (laughs) I couldn't Uh, be there the whole fucking time. Have you ever done anything like that, Matt? Oh, yeah. So this is the first year in four years, I think, where I wasn't also exhibiting. Oh, wow. You get to just like walk around and you can stop if you want to and leave Mm -hmm. if you feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the exhibiting thing is... It's intense because yeah. you you have to get there a whole day early to set up. Awful. Uh, when when everything's over, you don't leave. Right. No. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. Now you have to break down and. No, I do. You know, I do plenty of uh, markets and stuff like that. Like I do, I'll do these little tiny art things, but mm-hmm. like the big giant fucking con shit. I don't right. know if I'm ready for that. Yeah. And. I'll do what I really like to do is gallery shows and people, you know, some people complain. They're like, oh, but they take a percent. I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to fucking do anything. Right. That's what it's for. You pay them to do that. That shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a whole different world. And I got to say, it looks like it looks like a lot. It's a lot because not being able yeah. to just leave whenever you feel like being right. in, like you want to leave is just seems like it's a no from me. But I don't know. Yeah. I might change my tune. Who knows? But yeah. I work for these guys as well, so there's always something going on there too. Right. So nice. It's pretty much nonstop. What was your favorite thing about it so far? It's still this going year, on right now, but yeah. My favorite thing is the same every time. I know a lot of artists from out of town. See, yeah, that would be the cool. Like you get to see your artist pals from wherever the heck. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, and also like, you know, I'm only 40 miles away from Denver, but Denver is a thriving comic book art community. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, you know, it's hard for me to see all of those guys. And here they all are in the same room. So. That is super cool. I That's yeah. that's another aspect of it, doing those types of events that I like. Because, yeah, like you said, you get to see all your artist pals. and so Friendship. Yeah, friendship. We got a great review on iTunes from Tricky from Australia. Hey, thanks. Yeah, so thanks for sending us a review. He said, hey, you damn guys. I'll show you, friends. Yeah, what can I say about the Hellboy Book Club podcast? Well, it's a book club. You read the book. Then John, Aubrey, and Danielle (laughs) also read the book. There's some friends, and they talk about it, and you listen to them talk about it, and then you write in and talk about what they're talking about, and it's a book club, and we're all friends. A mind of information and discussion on all things about the big red guy in his universe, Hellboy, BPRD, Abe Sapien, Lobster Johnson, Sir Edward Gray. It's all there. 
serious about what they do, but not how they do it. Funny and friendly, join the club. Aw, yeah, what is this cool. book club member's name? Their name on here is Tricky. Right, right, Tricky. I'd love uh, an intro from you. Tricky, yeah, that'd go be great. ahead and yeah. send one in. Send one of those in. Oh, that'd be fun. I also like how how your description of the book club has become like a thing. Oh, <laughs> that's like a you get a lot of reviews kind of like that. I think it's pretty. That's the uh, pretty awesome. That's the segment that we call "What is the book club?" Let's talk about what it is. Yeah. <laughs> And I want to thank Skeleton Crew for giving us a shout out on Twitter. They for Follow Friday they shared us, and so oh, I gave nice. them some love too. I posted pictures of their pins and stuff like that over the week. Aw, some things I forgot to talk about. Matt, your book club fan art. We didn't even talk about that last week. So that was kind of like oh. that. Kind of kicked off a big part of our kind of relationship. Is you did some art of us in the BPRD covers, like a. I think one of them was the Hollow Earth cover. I'm in love with those. And the other one was drawings. the War on Frogs. Full color, too. And then you also did like a cartoon of us. Super and then cute. You also, Super cute. And then you also did that Hellboy and Dwight picture <laughs> from our discussion on that. All right. Well, yeah. one of those is like oh, yeah, our... That was a lot of fun. One of those things that you did, and there's these are like full color. I mean, they're this beautiful stuff, really. Yeah. I just, I'm in love with... One of them we we have now as our... Uh, it's like a... The, what is it fucking Facebook, called? The banner. The banner. What is the banner called? It's the cover like the photo. C- cover whatever thing that yeah, they call cool. it. But yeah, so we... It's, it's official. It's official Hellboy Book Club art now. It's not even fan art. It's official because you're on the thing now. Nice. So... <laughs> Great. Yeah. And also our beebs were in there. Those little Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also drew the birds in <laughs> the there. The birds in there. Anyway. Yeah, but that was so crazy from my point of view, you know, I've I've admired your work that you've done on BPRD in the past and then so for you to draw that stuff for us, I was just really blown away by everything that you did. Yeah, we didn't talk about that at all. So, I mean, one of the things that we also talked about is how quickly you are able to put stuff out. You always have content on your Instagram. What do you work with? Uh, these days, I use an iPad Pro. Nice. Okay, awesome. Nice. And and I use the program Procreate. Excellent. Nice. And I didn't really like my, you know, because there's a difference in your style when you're drawing with pencil and ink versus sure, digital. Sure, of course. I prefer the pencil and ink. So if I have like a project that I'm willing to put extra time into, I'll do it that way. Right, right. It takes some getting but, used to, but I think they both have their merits. Yeah, and digitally... I'll use like a brush. Yeah. And and so my confidence level with painting the lines has gone way up. Excellent. Nice. That's great. Be- because it's digital. I could just undo it. Yeah, exactly. You hit that <laughs> little undo button. Yeah. And, and so that's helped me get really fast too. And, you know, I'm putting down new lines. It looks different than my traditional style. But, you know, the main thing that helps me be quick is when I'm excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super motivated. Aww. And part of my contribution to, you know, Hellboy and BPRD was always bridging the gap between, like, the fandom. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And the actual books. So, so it's to perfect. be able to, yeah. Yeah. Doing homage covers with you guys was awesome. Aww. <laughs> That's very yeah. touching. No, I was going to say, I'm glad you like them. Probably do for another one. Yeah, you know. Well, you being on the podcast is enough. Thank you so much for all your time and everything, and uh, it's just been great talking with you. Yeah, I remember when uh, I remember when John sent the uh, sent me the first one you did. I was just like, "Holy shit!" Well, then when you did another one, I was so and then, touched uh, by that. Yeah, uh, I showed it off to my girlfriend, and uh, you know anybody who would look. You know, yeah, I showed it. I showed it to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Aubrey's mom has seen your work, Matt. How do you, how do you feel cool. about that? Yeah, that's good because not everyone appreciates being depicted as an illustration or a cartoon. <laughs> oh, we love I, it. Yeah, I've been doing this since I was a kid for my friends, and every now and then you get somebody who is just oh, they don't like so, it. Oh, they were just so unsatisfied. Oh no. Or maybe it was like too realistic. <laughs> uh, you gotta know what you then, look like. You gotta, you gotta, yeah. you can't take yourself too seriously. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, and like the comic version of myself, because I'm in a lot of these comics, yes. doesn't necessarily look like me. Right, right. So it's okay to have like a cartoon version of yourself. <laughs> yeah, I thought you did a great job with all of us. Cool, good. I'm glad you like them. Yeah, another thing that I forgot to talk about when we were talking about the long death last week was when we did Witchcraft and Demonology, we talked about how the creators, they looked for Santiago Caruso because they felt he was the right fit for that story. They tried to put the stories and the artists, they tried to pair them together. And that really made me think of the long death in James Heron, you know, like they knew that they were going to do this story. And then I, I think that kind of like how you talked about Matt, how they gave him a lot of room to breathe. I think that also goes along with this idea of choosing this artist to do this specific thing. Mm, yeah. All right. And now we're going to move on to some listener feedback. Hey, you damn guys. Hellboy comics and talking to our we got a Facebook message from Oscar Panagua. He says, hello from Guatemala. Hey, Guatemala. Hello. I started to listen to you recently. I wanted to ask you a question I've had for several years about Hellboy. In The Storm and the Fury, they tell us that Hellboy is the heir of King Arthur because he's the first man born of Arthur's lineage. But in The Chain Coffin, we see that there were two sons of Syracuse. There was the priest and the nun. The priest wouldn't technically also be part of that lineage? I guess technically he, the priest would have been the firstborn male of Mordred. But uh, was descended? he? Because Hellboy ages differently. So that makes me think like, well, no. Wait, well, I, don't, I don't even understand what's going on right now. So in the cha- in, Okay. So in the chain coffin, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Hellboy's mom, that witch. Yeah. Okay. There was a priest and a nun there and they were also her children. Okay. When Weren't you're, they dead? Yes. Yeah, they, get, dead. they get killed by a zale. So when um, you're dead, you can't be... An heir to anything. No, but would he also have been part of that lineage, I guess? Sure, but also when you're a priest, you give up lands and titles, because then you're not going to father any children. Ah. See, that was going to be the next thing I was going to bring up. Oh, okay. Sorry, Aubrey. No, no, no. It's okay. Uh, But it's just like, because technically, yes, but then he became a priest, and so it negates all of that. Yeah, you Ah, take a vow and all this stuff. But, But I guess from the technical standpoint... At one point, right. he right. would have been the heir. Before he, yeah, would have been, yeah. yeah. But then you, this thing called, uh, what's it called? What's the fucking word that kings do when they're like, I don't want this. Abdicate. Yep, abdicate. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> even thought about that. I thought it was such an interesting question. Thanks, that hadn't been brought up. <laughs> thank you, Aubrey. That was great. I want to thank Drew Campbell for working us into his schedule. He actually shared a picture of his schedule and he had Hellboy Book Club podcast like he had sections that was where he yeah. very cute. <laughs> I saw that. That was, that was Drew awesome. Campbell, book club member. Adorable. And when I posted about Tyler Crook's art, several of the listeners chimed in on how nice he and pleasant he is to meet in person. Aww. Ryan Yule, Mark Tweedell, and Nathaniel Green all had really nice things to say about him. So you always like to I, hear that. I I would love to meet Tyler Crook someday. Of course, yeah. That would be, be awesome. Jason Abaddon. But would Tyler Crook like to meet us? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. 
Jason Abaddon said, It's amazing how you know it's Tyler Crook instantly. Such a distinctive style. When I posted that picture of Kate, he says, I also love that Kate is always depicted as believable looking. They don't they don't sex her up with comic book balloon animal proportions and contortions. She's Kate, and a picture of her would be just like this. Like they took a Polaroid of someone that didn't want their picture taken and was way too busy for that shit. Yeah, so I love that. And when I posted about Fagredo's awesome covers to the Devil's Engine, Ryan Yule said, I love Duncan Fagredo's covers for the Devil's Engine. The original art for a couple of them are still for sale. And he posted a link to splashpageart.com. So you can go check that out if you have like a spare, you know, three grand or something and you Wait, want to buy Duncan, that cover. Wait, Duncan Fagredo's art? Yeah, it's the covers. Does he get the money for this? I think through Splash Art, it's like a commission type thing, or maybe. Do you know anything about that, Matt? No, I don't. But um, I'm sure he. I'm sure he gets the bulk of it. Yeah, okay. I think yeah. it's I'm just, just like a platform. I just to advertise anything that's not doesn't go straight. No, to the because artist. often the artists will post links as well. And oh, they'll cool, be like, okay. "Hey, my pages are up for sale on this website." Oh, or okay, cool, so, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. Some feedback on our episode last week. Jerry Turnbull said, great to hear Matt Strackbine. Yeah. Kevin Alford said, A Strack. <laughs> Techpad De Sequoia said, Matt Strackbine, book club member. <laughs> Sarah Cole said, guys, hear me out. More Matt. Permanent Matt. He's great. Aww. Clayton Schofield at Sir Edward Gray on Twitter said, love the episode. More Matt? Yes, please. Casually shooting the shit with the two dogs, seven legs owner. <laughs> yeah so i thought that was great because matt we were talking a little bit earlier and you were like did you get you asked me did you get any negative feedback Aww. on me being on the show and uh and i didn't want to tell you i mean i didn't want to spoil it we but yeah we him. got we, we got all these great comments about you oh cool yeah i mean part of me just thinks you need to have more guests on the show yeah. sure yeah i'm gonna get jerry on here one of these days that would be great yeah. that would be great Drew Campbell said, wow, Tyler Crook, James Heron, and Figredo on covers. Talk about an artgasm. I've already recommended Tyler's Harrow County, so this time I'll say, if you haven't read John Arcudi and James Heron Rumble, you really need to drop everything and go read it now. It's so incredibly good. Yeah, so John Arcudi, we've read a lot of his stuff already, and James Heron, obviously, we love. They do this awesome title for Image called Rumble, and guess who's the colorist? Dave Stewart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have read some of it but yeah i really need because i miss our cootie yeah i i have the first three trades but i need to uh, i need to get into the rest of that drew campbell also said it's really cool to hear matt strackbine on the podcast his letters to hell mail were always a highlight of reading the new issues and they made it feel like a community even without the help of the internet i'd say matt was a book club member before there was a book club Pre-book oh, club. Uh, You're pre-book club, Matt. Cool. Okay. Well, that man, these are very nice things. Like, <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, I'm glad to hear. That's so cool. Yeah, I like that last comment a lot. Yeah, and he also said, I don't have much to add about these stories that hasn't already been said, but listening to the episode, it did occur to me that even though Phoenix actually shot Abe, I never hated her like I hate Devon. That's probably thanks to the Devil's Engine and the fact that this story where she shares the lead with Devon, she feels like much more of a sympathetic character who's just trying to do what she thinks is best. Devon, on the other hand, while he does have some redeeming moments of heroism, mostly comes off as a pushy asshole. The juxtaposition of the two characters really benefits Phoenix, and I think it short-circuited most of the negative feelings I had towards her shooting Abe. Yeah, so I thought that was a great comment. Jerry Turnbull said, The Long Death is an absolute favorite of mine. James Heron is an art god. The fight sequence in issue 3 is one of the best fight sequences of all comics. Not just the physical aspect, but it's literally a fight for a man's soul. 
So I thought that was great. Jen Niklas said, oh, you guys, you aren't any stupid Americans. You're our stupid Americans. That's worth a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Jen Niklas. And he also said, hi, Jen Matt. Niklas. Yeah, book club member. He also said, hi, Matt. Hope to hear you more often from now on. The Devil's Engine is so far interesting that I got this feeling that it was supposed to be a start of a redemption arc for Devon. Don't know why. Maybe I'm too used to reading this kind of story where the asshole gets baptized through blood of their enemies and becomes less of an asshole. Because violence is cathartic or something like that. Let's see how it works out for Devon. The Long Death is also interesting because of its ending. Because let's be honest, in every other series... Ben would have come back to the BPRD, and they would have had some callbacks to that time when he killed everyone. Then he and Liz finally make up, and Ben and Johan do macho handshake from Predator. (laughs) (laughs) But but this story is different. I get the feeling that there were more plans for Daimyo, and then he got the cut. But in this case, it works. Because now we see real consequences for a character that didn't seek help, that stayed on his path of being an ineffective loner and bottling up his pain and illness. Because he was the most American macho of all the machos. It ate him up, and this ending may be the most realistic conclusion for this kind of story I've ever read. There's nothing heroic about keeping it to yourself. Until you can't even live like a person anymore. Get help unless you want to be like Ben. Rest in peace, Ben. Hear you next week. And he also said, P.S. I think Darrow and Ben accidentally freed each other's souls through the killing. Ben was technically dead when he got his curse, and Darrow was so torn into pieces, I think there was nothing left to carry on the curse. So I think they dispelled each other by dismembering each other. How poetic. I like yeah. that. I mean, it's kind of sad, but better than, than either one of them having to continue as a monster. Right. Yeah. I mean, what we already felt kind of bad for the Wendigo. You know, already he was already kind of yeah. like a sympathetic person, you know, so. So is, is that what actually happened? Was that they tore each other to shreds? I don't know. That's what Jen Niklas is saying his interpretation was. But we never really saw, like, I guess, remains of the Wendigo. We just saw Ben. But, like, turn that page again, Aubrey. Now the other way. Because Aubrey's got it pulled up here. But, like, if you look at the remains of Daimyo, like, his whole bottom half is torn off. So I was thinking about that some more after uh, the last episode. And how about that? It, okay, so remember the moose? Yeah, uh, right. The, and... And it looked like maybe that Daryl had killed that thing in a somewhat humane fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end here, it appears he went full Wendigo. Right. And so he tore Daimyo to shreds in the same way the where Jaguar had been killing. And it would also seem that the creators gave us the bookends. They show Daryl flying through the air, and then we get the aftermath. So they spared the reader from having to watch Daryl go there. Wow. But it's interesting to think that maybe they tore each other apart and just fought till there was nothing left. Right, yeah. Because the the Wendigo already had his guts hanging out when he's flying through the air in that last shot. Horrible. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. He was talking about how, you know, like if this were a regular comic, Daimyo would already be back with the BPRD and everybody be bro-hugging it out. But I was just thinking about this the other day, and there's one thing I really enjoyed about this series is everything moves on and there's consequences right like the volcanoes blew up the world and monsters all over the damn place and houston's been blown up yeah and that's still going on yes and 
it's like you know like you know when you read like um like one of the big two and their crossover events and you have this horrific shit happening but by the the end of the summer everything's fine and everybody's back to normal right <laughs> and i think this is part of the reason i've been so much enjoying so much of this story or this this book or all of these books is because of the progression and yeah the, and the not going back it it is really interesting and i think like right around this time I remember there was a famous quote. I don't know if you remember this, Matt, in the publicity for all these stories where they said, we're breaking stuff that can't be fixed. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. I just put that in that um, comic I did about issue 15. Yeah. They, um, when I first heard that, I was like, yeah, right. We'll see. That that could just be a mark. <laughs> like, like, it could just be marketing, right? Right. But what are consequences if you can just undo it later on. Right. And so, you know, the, as the stakes get higher and higher, it's naturally just, uh, you know, more drastic consequences. And they're telling the truth when they said that. Yeah, they definitely followed through on that. It also shows that these series that we're reading that we love so much, they have shown a consistent pattern of good storytelling. Yeah. And yes. I think that's a mark of good and That's part of it, yeah. And we all, we all do have these things that we enjoy where, you know... Every week or every month, they're they're back where they, and now sure. they're off for a new adventure. And there's you know whatever. But I mean, I this is all this is the mark of some really good fucking yeah. storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. like someone loses a fucking arm, they're not gonna come back the next day right, with like, yeah. oh, it's just the next adventure with two arms. Like they they don't have an arm anymore. Yeah. So it's it's good storytelling. Or it's like mm-hmm. you know like. Uh, I grew my arm back. Right, right. Using um, a combination of nanoparticles and right, whatever, uh, yeah, stem cells. Just like we talked a little bit last week, how they planned out all of Droko's injuries. You know what I mean? So yeah. that way they made sure that that would carry on because you'd definitely be permanently, you know, injured by something like that. We also got a lot of feedback from Mark Tweedow. I always get really excited when my Twitter blows up and I look that it's Mark Tweedow. <laughs> yes. Because I know huh. that we're getting a Mignola Versity's article worth of feedback from him. He says, I don't know how the Bureau would know about Zinkel's connection to the Plague of Frogs. They only ever seen the Black Flame and they have no idea who he really is. And the Zinkel board members have no reason to tell anyone anything as it'd be against their interest to do so. Why would it be? I uh, wonder. Yeah. Like, like if I was a board member and I went home and my wife was like, <laughs> so what happened? And said, well, I got let go. Why? What went down? Eh, I have a non, I, I have a non-disclosure agreement. I right. can't break it or something. But wouldn't you say, no, the boss, the boss comes in, he's in this suit, his head is on fire. And then he calmly just dismissed like, I don't know if you would consider them a whistleblower. Right. Somebody. Right. Okay. So first of all, Mark <laughs> Tweedale is a living, breathing Hellboy annotation. Yeah. And <laughs> I would be lost without him. I typically defer to his take on these things. Yes. Uh, and in fact, whenever I speculate about stuff in these books, I feel like I should just be addressing Mark <laughs> directly. Book club member. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need a scholar like this yeah especially because like like in some of the stuff we read today there's all these intersecting storylines right and that's hard to keep track of it really is um but i feel like i have a tendency to how do i want to say it like live in the panels and i know it's probably a waste of time on the creator's part to go this deep but i always feel like somebody would have said something 
Right. <laughs> and and it was like it was in the warning when they're in Germany, I think, and they see the drawing of the black flame on that oh, yeah, wall. Yeah. Yeah. Like in her home. And Abe this always stuck with me. Abe says few people outside of this room know that this man exists. Right. And I think it's like Abe, Liz, and Johan have all seen him in person. And I was like, well, that's not true because that board, the whole board of oh, directors right. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He walked out in the black flame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know t- in today's age, somebody would have been recording that with their phone. Right. Right. Yeah. Be yeah. all over YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like that might not serve the story to reveal that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so anyway. Uh, but that that's what I mean by I, I tend to live in the panels. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's, Mark is definitely on the right track. Well, one thing, like, because I've, like, I've worked for um, a bunch of, like, you know, small companies in Houston that are, like, private companies, but they still have a board of directors. But the board only really meets, like, once a year. So maybe the mm-hmm. board just doesn't really know all that all that's going on. Right. With the day-to-day operations hmm. of fucking whatever. What are their day-to-day operations right. so that's been causing the apocalypse? No, right. that's their thing. That's yeah. their whole deal. We also talked about Bruiser a little bit. And Mark Tweedell said, Bruiser was introduced in the first page of God's number one. He wasn't Phoenix's dog. She just adopted him, and I doubt she gave him his name. Given what we know about the guy that owned him, he seems like the kind of person that'd name a dog Bruiser. I agree with Danielle. <laughs> Yeah, so remember it was those security guards that were out looking for oh, people yeah. Yeah, to yeah, beat yeah, yeah. up or whatever. I totally missed that thread. Thank you for that. In regards to the Wendigo fight, the thing that defines Daryl more than anything is that he doesn't kill. If he kills Daimyo, then he's betraying the last part of himself he still has. The human part of him knows he has to stop Daimyo, but it's also the part of him that can't surrender the last vestige of his humanity. Also, I got to point out Daimyo's symbolic baptism. Arcudi and Heron deliberately set up the imagery in the first issue to set up this final scene. So, yeah, remember, they watched the video of the baptism, and then at the end, he pours the water over Daniel's face. Yeah. So I didn't even think about that. That's really beautiful. And he also... And he said, as for the transference of souls... Well, I like to think that during Hell on Earth, Bendigo returned to the good fight and killed a lot of monsters. Either way, I think it's best left to the reader's imagination. Oh, Bendigo. Yeah, the oh. Bendigo. That's what he called oh, it. <laughs> that's good. Why haven't we been doing that that's this great. whole time? We, also talk, we were talking a little bit about who our favorite characters are, and Mark Tweedell said his is Kate Corgan. One day I'd love to own an interior page with Kate on it by Mignola. I don't like my chances, though. (laughs) And then he says, okay, I've got to talk about Devon again, because everyone kept saying he's selfish, and I just don't see it that way. What defines Devon right from when we first meet him in the Universal Machine is that he always feels out of his depth. Despite this, he puts himself in harm's way again and again. After a brush with werewolves, he joined the Bureau, and his first active mission was against a were-jaguar that killed a bunch of Bureau agents. And yet he stuck around. And as we see in this arc, he'll stand between Phoenix and a monster, even when he's unarmed. Devon is a dick, but I wouldn't characterize him as selfish. Instead, I see his negative attributes coming from a place of fear and fragility. Back in Gods, he had some very strong concerns about Abe, and he's a real dick about it, which masks that his concerns are actually pretty valid. We like Abe, so it's easy to make excuses for him, even when he isn't willing to consider what he could be. If there's anything the long death hits home, it's that even though Daimyo was a good guy, his refusal to acknowledge what was happening to him led to a lot of people dying, and Abe could potentially be this on a global scale. At the end of Gods, Devon sees a girl with precognitive abilities shoot Abe without a second's hesitation 
hesitation. Suddenly, Devon's concerns have been upgraded to something concrete in his mind. Holy shit, she knows the future and she shot Abe. And that moment leads him to make a really fucking bad call. From that one moment, he constructs... He constructs... I will, I will, just, just go ahead. I will say that he does not he sees it as a quote unquote abilities right. he does the scare quotes thing in his <laughs> mind where he's like oh so if you've got these abilities why don't you just see the future and tell me what's gonna exactly what's gonna happen right. and she's like it doesn't work that way it's like a feeling he's like oh you got some feelings oh he doesn't he i don't think he's really that until the big shit happens with the right with well, later. the train car and yeah. all that yeah and that's but anyway what, that's nitpicking i'm sorry i don't right, mean to interject yeah. go and, on and, 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 and what mark says is he constructs who phoenix is in his head someone with answers someone whose judgment is infallible and i guess that yeah that would be after the train right, car right, incident. Right, right, right. i mean when he watched her shoot a he didn't know it was just a feeling he assumed that she was oh, clairvoyant he, okay because he hadn't right. actually met her yet right right right, right. so he's yeah and, that would and, give someone only, kind of a creepy pr- and the uh, only information that they had was from the briefing where right. all the people that were surviving were the ones who were following no Phoenix. you're right you're right and that's that would give anyone a creepy impression but yeah i don't know man when you act out of fear the consequences of your actions are the same no matter what is driving and i think that's the whole point of like when you act out of fear all this horrible shit happens you have to you know, it's hard not to, but we all have to strive to not fucking do that. Right. I guess maybe is the, I don't know. And he also says when he is responding on Phoenix, you know, she's responding on an emotional level, something that Devon is poorly equipped to deal with. He's not exactly a people person and even blatantly avoiding straight answers. That's Phoenix mm. trust issues at play. But Devon doesn't know that because he sucks at reading people. To him, she appears to be treating something very seriously as a game. You can see that coming through with his frustration when a bunch of people died in the train and she's playing with Bruiser. He's not equipped with the emotional intelligence to read what's really going on. In this arc, time and time again, he expects Phoenix to have answers, and he'll ask her point blank and she has none. That's not her fault, but it's gnawing at Devon. Every lack of answer further crumbles the foundation he's standing on. When finally Phoenix tells him why she shot Abe, he's shaken. And that's why the final line of this scene, now I know I was, is truncated, because it doesn't matter if he says right or wrong. It's left ambiguous because he doesn't truly know anymore. He has good reasons to both trust and doubt Phoenix's judgment, but his biggest problem is that he's blind to his own bias, his fear. If he can tell himself he's being logical, he can be blind to it. I don't think he consciously put all this on Phoenix, but he's not good at managing his feelings under pressure, and this bubbles over in the form of passive-aggressive behavior. He's a dick. He sucks at reading people. He's bad at managing his emotions, and he's so very overwhelmed, but I don't think he's selfish. Incidentally, in a 2012 interview, Arcudi mentioned that Devon was one of his favorite characters to write, and I think that's partially because of the complexity he brings to the story. And uh, yeah, I thought that was really great. That was yeah, really I mean, great yeah. feedback, and it kind of makes us think Absolutely. about it in a different well, way. I won't deny that having confused, complicated, complex characters, that that's not part of any good story and that's not good storytelling of course it is of course it is but you can also that's that's the whole point like you're right. you're investing in these characters you're you're engaging with these characters you know as though this were happening to you that's the whole thing that's what puts you in the middle of a good fucking story so well is this kind of well he's complicated well yeah but i mean that doesn't also mean that he's not a fucking dick right like <laughs> yeah if if someone were acting that way someone in my life i'd be like what the fuck dude i'm not saying i can't identify with that whole acting out of fear thing but you know you would you would always hope that you're 
going to be able to say, oh, well, I'm not going to do. Well, yeah, maybe you would, though. Right. So, yeah, maybe it is worth it to kind of connect yourself a little bit more to these characters and try to be like, well, he's, you know, he's having a hard time. So it it gives you a lot to think about for sure. So thank you for providing that extra perspective. Yeah. Mark left all these comments on Twitter and then he came back and he said, admittedly, I had a moment about an hour later after I wrote these when I stopped and thought, why the hell am I defending Devon? He's such a (laughs) (laughs) wanker. Yeah. Well, probably because you, you know, you want people to look at you with forgiveness when you do something fucked up. Yeah. Because you want a second chance. You want to be like, well, that's not really me all the time. I was just afraid and I was just, you know, having a hard time and I was going through a mental health crisis and I was whatever. You want, when you do things that hurt other people, you want to be forgiven. You want another chance. You want to be able to move on and grow and be a different person and move on with your life and, and get a chance for redemption and get a chance to. But then you come back and you think, wait a minute, but that person really is a dick, though. That person really is kind of a dick. <laughs> right. And Jason Abaddon said, we were talking about Bruiser. He says, that's, that's the name of my sister's Rottweiler guard dog when we were small kids. No way. My Rottweiler was Rocky. They were awesome and huge, and I used to ride mine when I was four. And Bruiser is the only thing that I liked about Phoenix. The swan song of my favorite BPRD character, Ben Daimio. I don't think anyone, anyone could have illustrated the story as well as James Heron. It brings the horror and tragedy back to Ben one last time. Did Abe know that Daryl was with Ben? Or maybe that Ben was tracking Daryl? If so, was it just because only Daryl could kill Ben? I can see that unspoken thing between them. Two friends doing what they got to, but not talking about it either. So, yeah, but Abe, Abe did know that they were together, right? Yeah. Isn't yeah, well, that why he brought the... Yeah, he brought him the photo. Yeah. He said, it's worth noting that Johan doesn't use his power to speak to the dead when identifying Daimyo's body. He didn't want to uh, know. Yikes. Yeah, I thought that was great. Good call. Yeah, that is a very good call. But did he need or to? Or was there anything left yeah. to yeah. communicate with? Yeah, right. I don't know. But did he mm-hmm. feel like... why? Like, Maybe he didn't want to disturb him. He just says, it's t- we can go home now. Yeah. That's all that he says. And so, yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Mm. Great, great. So now we're going to move on to our book club episode for the week. This week we're going to talk about... Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about an unmarked grave. Uh, we were trying to do something different for the episode, and that just kind of didn't work out this week. But that's fine. I'm glad that we have Matt on again. And so we're going to do an unmarked grave, and we're also going to do some BPRD Hell on Earth stories. And we're going to start with... The Pickens County Horror. It's a two-issue miniseries published from March to April 2012. The issues were released with covers by Becky Cloonan, with a Year of Monsters variant for the first issue by Mignola. And so uh, people have, um, I think it was Mark Tweedo actually that turned me on to Becky Cloonan. He was suggesting that I read by Chance or Providence. And so I picked that up and it's really fucking good. And um, yeah, Becky Cloonan's art is awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here loving this cover right here. <laughs> Becky Cloonan was the first female artist on the main Batman title. Right, yes. She was the first female artist to draw Batman. Yeah, I forget the year, but I think that's notable. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. Between her self-published stuff and more mainstream comics that she's done, there's a lot of work out there. Yeah. you, I mean, seek it out. One of my favorite bands is this band called Clutch, and they have this um, they have this one LP that they released, and the cover is actually by Becky Cloonan, and it is oh, so wow. fucking super kick good. Ass. It's awesome. Yeah, it's like this 
woman there and she's got a sword and there are all these snake heads around her. Well, and the album itself is just a collection of songs that they've written that are all just about witches. witches. Yeah. It's called La Curandera. Oh, okay. Never yeah. mind. Uh, wasn't the alternate cover for this or the variant cover? What, it was a uh, Year of the Monsters, right? Is yeah, it was, it was one of those Year of Monster variants. I forget which one. I think it was the one with that BPRD voodoo doll. Yes, the witch is holding up this. Yeah, you're right. It is that. Yeah, one. that's that's one of my favorite BPRD images of all time. Yeah, great. I love that story by Mignola and Scott Alley. Happy birthday, Scott Alley! It was just his birthday a couple days ago. Happy birthday. Art by Jason Latour, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. And yeah, so we haven't had Jason Latour on the title yet, so it's great to see his art. We open in South Carolina, and we kind of focus on this like dilapidated house a tv plays and it reports on floodwaters in new england infection rates in seattle after the pike place disaster and we saw this disaster on the bprd hell on earth seattle and as they focus in on the tv they show someone who's got like a monster foot right and they talk about that the seattle biomedical research crew have teamed up with the bprd to study this problem and then they also mentioned Rampeadik, which was the mining town from BPRD Russia. And so we pull out and basically the world's going to hell, right? We see this family of people and they're hanging around the TV. They're watching this and they're all vampires, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very X-Files cold open. I, I, I like how they're just depicted as people sitting around the TV. They don't have like the cloaks and they're not all speaking in no, this yeah. European prose or whatever. They, they've got a very like redneck country look to them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even their TV is a box TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and the girl says, isn't it about time for? Oh, it's got to be close now, the mom says. Don't you think, Jasper? Well, old man. And they turn to this like old vampire he's like the grandpa vampire i guess i guess and he's just in the corner and he looks like more age than the other ones and he just says soon well he looks all fucked up yeah it looks like he hasn't fed in a while right and this dad figure you know he complains that this is all they ever hear soon and as they talk the mom wonders where the boy is Cole, the girl says, I'll go find him. And she goes and she finds him out at the river and he's playing with a frog or something like that. And I really like Jason Latour putting like the onomatopoeias like in the, I think that's probably part of the pencils, right? right. Oh, yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, that could. Um, what do you think? Do you think that's Clem Robbins that, or Latour? Matt? I think that's a brush. I think that's a Photoshop or a whatever the program he used to, to digitally color this. It's the, overlaying all of the. Right, line yeah. work. That's definitely a digital brush. Huh. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. The girl tells him that it'll be light soon. And Cole says he thinks they should check out the field. They run over and the girl's like, is this where they put him? Cole also mentions it doesn't smell like morning. So it's kind of like there's something weird going on. And so they go to check on this guy. And so there's this like vampire just in the ground, right? I thought this was kind of weird. So they like have people that they're watching over that are still sleeping, I guess. Well, uh, that reminds me of the thing where they were like, we're going to make a lot of vampires and we're not going to wake them up until right, it's yeah. time to wake them all mm -hmm. up at the same time. They talked time. about that in the sleeping in right, the dead so and we don't we talk about that in the story as well yes yeah so they find this buried guy in the ground and cole reaches out to touch his face and suddenly his eyes open what did you do you aren't supposed to wake him up yet the girl says and cole touches the man and it like burns his finger you know and then he's got like this gooey slime thing on it 
and they all looked pretty terrified of it. Yeah, and so that scene ends, and we... Oh, and I just noticed there's also all those mushrooms there. I didn't notice that the first time. So where where that guy is in the ground, you know, there's all the mushrooms all around him. You can kind of see that. Mm. And it cuts to six days later. We cut to the daytime, and we see Agent Vaughn. We saw him before in BPRD Casualties and Abe Sapien Lost Lives. And we also meet Agent Peters. They arrive in a helicopter in Pickens County, South Carolina, and they meet with a local named Gene Barlow. And Barlow mentions they wouldn't have been able to land with the fog. It slides off the hill every night. Barlow suggests they check on Jasper Dillon. They're the only ones dumb enough to live here. Apparently, people are getting sick and dying in the area. And in their conversation, Barlow says they need to check out that fog. It makes an awful moaning sound. And then Barlow, like, books it out of there. But I just like this detail that the fog, like, makes this sound. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that before in, like, media that, you know, because there obviously yeah. have been, like, these stories where fog comes and it, like, kills people or whatever. But I don't know if I've ever heard that it, like, moans or whatever. It just gives a whole other element to that. Hey, like, did you notice the scoreboard with that mascot, the green wave? Yeah. <laughs> So that's a real mascot. Oh, wow. I didn't even look that uh, up. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I forget where I saw it originally, but it's used by a whole bunch of different, like, high schools and stuff like that. Amazing. Wow, Yeah. yeah. Because my high school was Bulldogs. And, like, whenever I see other high schools that have Bulldogs as a mascot, it's always the same image. All high schools that have Bulldog mascots are all the same Bulldog. (laughs) And I guess it's the same thing with this green wave, too. That's really interesting. What is, what's with the green wave? I don't get that. Do you know what that is, Matt? What is the green wave? No, I don't know. (laughs) This is just an assumption, but I think maybe one person did it and then everyone was like, let's use that one. Yeah. All right. It sounds cool, yeah. I guess. I mean, uh, listeners, let us know if you know anything about the green wave. Yeah, if you if you went to a school where the green wave is your is your mascot, right. let us know what that was like for you. Yeah, thanks for pointing out that <laughs> detail, Matt. That's so awesome. But also, how cool that BPRD chopper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that and uh, Agent Peter's hat. I really dig it. Oh, yeah. It's just, I mean, it's kind of stylish hat with the offset logo placement. But yeah. That chopper is awesome with the big logo on it. That's so cool. <laughs> that's all there. That's the money from the UN, I guess. Yeah. Well, the chopper, oh, yeah. Okay. The, the chopper style kind of reminds me of the uh, choppers at the opening of MASH TV show. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Peters makes some references here. She calls Barlow Barney Fife. And Vaughn wonders how old she is. I saw it on TV land, she says. And Barney Fife is the character in the Andy Griffin show. He's portrayed by Don Knotts. And he's a deputy sheriff in a slow-paced, sleepy southern community in Mayberry, North Carolina. So this takes place in South Carolina. So she's not far off. Look, even if you haven't, even if you haven't seen this, the right. original thing that's come from, Barney Fife is is a reference in so many other pop culture right, yeah. shows you for are, you kind of know the being connotation. a dumb, slow You can pop. use context yeah, clues. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I, I've never, ever seen that fucking show, but I know what a Barney Fife right. is. I know that it's just shorthand for your dumb, slow cop or whatever the heck they're trying to convey. Like, that's, you know, right? I mean, yeah. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I used to watch that show when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I've seen so many other shows reference that name. Right. So Yeah, she mentions you know. TV Land, and that's an American television channel where they show all these old shows and stuff like that. So It uh, started off as like Nick at Night. 
<laughs> right. I don't know any of this. Vaughn mentions that some missions are boring, and he mentions a trip that he went on with Hellboy in 83, and we see Latour's version of Hellboy. I also like Vaughn has this little, like, meter or something that he's working with, so he's got, like, a piece of tech there that I guess is, we'll see later what that does. That's always fun. That's good. It's a good device in a TV show. Yeah. Because then it starts going fucking crazy. Exactly. With, it starts making the super loud sound the closer you get to something, and then the music kind of rises, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. It's like the Ghostbusters PKE meter. Right. <laughs> well, or even just like a, if you're measuring like nu- nuclear activity or what, what do they do that? What the fuck is it called? It's a... Geiger meter or something. Geiger counter. Or something. Geiger counter. Is yeah. it? Yeah, yeah it's Geiger Yeah, counter. I'm watching uh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Yeah, we're yeah. watching that too. Where everyone inexplicably has British accents. <laughs> oh, I need to watch that one. It's on my list. Terrifying. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it really it's is. Horrible. It's, it's a, horrible. It's horrible, but it's show. great. Yeah, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Vaughn mentions this mission. He says that they went out. They went to check out a lake monster in New Brunswick. Hey, it's a Hellboy. We spent three days next to a stinking pile of deer meat, which he was sure would attract the thing. We never saw it. Ape Sapient went back two weeks later and got it all by himself. It's and we see, see them there, like throwing cards yeah. into the hat or whatever. I really like that. It's good, even if he's not like in the story. Like we get a little appearance from him. You get to. It's good. Yeah. Artist gets to draw him at least a couple panels. Or Peter says, at least Vaughn got to work with Hellboy. But the world is different now, and the Bureau probably didn't send them on vacation when Houston is blown up and that thing in Seattle. And we get a nice flashback to that BPRD Seattle. So Vaughn was there. You know, here we kind of see that he was there, too. And I like seeing that monster. This little panel down here kind of reminds me of Cloverfield. There's a shot in that movie Cloverfield that almost looks exactly like this. Had that come out yet? When did that come out? I don't remember. Yeah, it's not important. Well, so she's something that's confusing to me is that she's the one who's like, hey... They call this out on this. It's a waste of time. It's boring. And he's like, well, you got to get used to the boring stuff. Here's a story about it's boring and nothing happened. But then she's like, yeah, well, I don't think the Bureau can afford to send you and me on vacation. So it must be something's up. So she right. just comes to this conclusion oh, right. suddenly. Yeah. Like, well, I guess <laughs> maybe I'm wrong and this is going to be something. Right. So I guess they're tr- they're trying to convey that it's not a camping trip. We're going to see something. Right. So that's cool. I assume that's why we're here in the first place. And yeah. <laughs> Cloverville came out in 2008. Oh, okay. Oh, so it was you. out by then. Thanks, Aubrey. And Vaughn, you know, he's got that gun. So it starts going off. It starts beeping. And they find mushrooms. And Vaughn picks up this little one and puts it in an evidence bag. Well, and I just they, really wait, like they these... take they take the time to mention the kudzu the kudzu vine. Oh right, exactly. They take the time to, to mention this kudzu is it kudzu or kudzu? It's, it's kudzu. It's kudzu. Okay. I don't oh. know how to pronounce the thing. Thank uh, you. It was all over Alabama. It's all over, there. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's uh he says like, Oh, it's a weed. It's killing the tree and she's like, Well it's not a weed, but a lot of people do call it like a noxious weed. They right. they consider it a weed. But uh it is invasive. And so it's something that spreads very super quickly. I actually went on Wikipedia to look this thing up and just fell, read the entire article. Oh, yeah. It's fascinating. So if you want to look this up, it's, yeah, just go to Wikipedia and read that. Yeah. Because every part of this article is just fascinating. I didn't know anything about any of this. And so, yeah. I, I, Apparently I they like, spend billions of dollars keeping it at, yeah, it's yeah, incredible. maintaining it every year. Well, not just that, but there's so much about it. Like, it, it does have its uses, but it's also like... Yeah, it's fucking out of control. And so are they mentioning that in the story here? Because that's like the current high water mark for infestation or. Yeah, right. What, so until now, that's the main thing that's been going wrong. 
in the area or yes you know what i mean like they kind of introduced the concept of like i think it's like an allegory once once it's been introduced nothing you do can stop it from spreading right, so it's yeah. kind of like what they're battling right. against right now well i remember um you know because Cuzzy was everywhere in like alabama Georgia. Right. it's a sweet pea vine it looks um, pretty that is very that's pretty. awful but uh, Kills i remember everything stories about how like they introduced it because of um drought conditions or well, something okay. the soil uh, they wanted to enrich the soil and it yeah. does that like it's a legume so well, it it's kind of like makes you think it's like a um you know don't introduce unknown species because you don't know the consequences gonna yeah, happen right absolutely for yeah. sure and i like this panel where they pick the mushroom they get the mushroom with yeah the little uh tweezers or whatever i just like that, that mushrooms piece, are constantly conveyed in these in these series as being like evil but i it, it makes me so sad because mushrooms know. are so great well they show yeah they come across a shit ton of mushrooms and that radar thing is just going off like crazy and we've seen a bunch of mushrooms in bprd the dead and bprd hell on earth russia and it's never been a good outcome right yeah when we find this kind of stuff i'm i i can't get with that I can't get with that. And uh, Vaughn is, he's really smart too because immediately he's like, we left something in the chopper. And they come back and they come back and they're in the hazmat (laughs) suit. So yeah, I mean, he immediately, he has some experience with this and he, you know, he fills in Peters on the connection with the fungus and the frog monsters that started in Michigan. And he mentions how the Bureau let something grow in a Jersey lab. They won't do that again. And so that was what happened in uh, BPRD Plague of Frogs. It pretty much put the whole world on the path. Yeah, Yeah. that's where it started. That's so crazy. Like the kudzu vine, right, Aubrey? Yep. I really like this uh, bottom panel here. Where he's in his hazmat suit, just the way it's drawn, and it's all silhouetted, and you know, it's it's kind of very simple, but also very detailed. But it, it I, I just uses a little to say a lot. Yeah, yeah, the art here is really good. I like um, Peter sees something, and they turn around, and they see these dark, shambling figures, and I really love how Latour and Dave Stewart do this kind of effect. You see these figures, but they're all black; they have Super like no creepy, detail, yeah. and the way the fog and the mist is kind of rolling around them. Seems like it would be difficult to color because, I mean, how do you know? I guess sometimes they make those little hash marks where they show like what part is supposed to be black and what part is supposed to be the fog. This is actually, I hate to keep pointing this out. This is a brush. Right. This is a half tone. Okay. That's a half tone right there. So I'm wondering, like, did is this drawn digitally and then sent over to Dave Stewart for digital coloring? Most likely. I yeah. want to think that this is probably. The ink part of it, like the inked quote unquote part of it, all looks like digital brushes to me. So I'm wondering if this was drawn digitally and then colored digitally. Right. That would make it, I think, a little bit easier, probably. I would assume it was all done digitally. On Dave Stewart, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, she falls back, and it kind of seems like she's a little bit inexperienced, right? Because Vaughn has to tell her to pull her gun, and then she trips over this thing. And yeah, so as soon as her hazmat suit tears, I'm like, oh, they're fucked, Well, it's right? always the one who's complaining that shit is boring, but right? it's yeah. fucked, right? Like, it's... Well, it also looks like uh, it may be torn when she kicked her leg out, because uh, it looked like he kicked her in the face. Well, no, he grabs her leg, and so she has to kick him to get free, but well, as that's when she's it gets kicking torn. Him, yeah. 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 And as these panels go on, there's just more and more fog color, right? It's taking up more and more of the panels, and... Vaughn starts to not feel good. And, and there's then, a cross. Yeah, he sees this cross. We see, And we can see like kind of glasses too. And then he just passes out. Vaughn awakes in this cabin. 
He's out of his hazmat suit, sleeping on the couch. He looks around, and it's like there's uh, just all these crosses everywhere. And there's, like, no electricity either, right? Because we see, like, this old stove and these two lanterns. We see both of the hazmat suits. That is a shit ton of crosses in there. Yeah, they're everywhere. And Vaughn, he inspects the suits, and he takes um, the guns out. Well, he takes one of the guns out and puts it under the couch. And he looks outside, and there's all that fog still. And so these are just really good panels as he's, like, waking up. You know, you can see the sweat and everything. And um, it's just a such a stark contrast from the previous scene. Good evening, a voice says. And we reveal this man with white hair. He's Professor Ethan Thomas. He tells Vaughn, you were on the wrong side of the hill, over by the vampires. Vaughn's like, vampires? Well, of course. And he kind of introduces himself, and he's like, he's very nonchalant about this whole thing. He mentions as he's writing a book on the definitive history of vampires in America. He's made friends with a vampire named Cole, and that's the little boy, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he's mentioning all this. He's pouring them some tea and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's nothing, you know, to talk about this. He even, like, wonders how the BPRD heard about his book because he's been trying to keep it a secret. And right. He, he's, like, there, like, I, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Vaughn is just asking where his partner is. Your partner's in the other room, Thomas says. She got it worse, so I gave her the bed. But you didn't come to see me, Thomas asks. You've come about the fog. I'm not surprised. It's very strange. But I hate to say you do anything to interfere with my research, Agent Vaughn. I believe there's one over here. One of the original Madeline Rose vampires. And he's like, I don't know what that means. And this guy, he kind of turns quickly, right? He's like, Madeline Rose, it's one of the most important events in American history. <laughs> He's like, I'm no historian. Right. <laughs> Thomas says, in your line of work, it's just ridiculous for you to not know about this sort of thing. About the Madeline Rose? Vaughn says, I guess vampire history doesn't come up that often. Of course, Thomas says, because their plan is working. And I love this panel. He's all kind of crazed. And he's like, yeah, this is all part of this conspiracy. It's December of 1773. He explains this whole thing, right? So, there so were he's these... kind of lost the plot. He's lost, he's exactly, lost yeah. the perspective <laughs> here. He's like, um, interview with a vampire. And the other guy's like, cool. Uh, my friend's dying. Right, and he mentions this ship, Madeline Rose. So they tried to do like kind of like the Boston Tea Party with it, and but then when they opened the crates, instead there were vampires in there. Nice. And there were these Prussian vampires, and we talked a little bit about this in our Land of the Dead discussion. When Broom and Abe were talking in the library, Broom mentioned to Abe that the vampires he encountered were Prussian mercenaries sent by King George against American revolutionaries in the 18th century. And this actually did happen. Over 30,000 Hessian soldiers were hired to fight against the American rebels during the Revolutionary War. And so this is where they came from. And and this helmet on this uniform, we saw those helmets in the cave yeah. in Land of the Dead, right? So that, yeah. I like how it's tying that together. We were wondering how they got there, right? Right. Thomas mentions that there was a survivor who went back with others to kill a few of the vampires. Their surviving half dozen went into hiding. Since they were already being hunted, they decided to lay low and wait, increasing their numbers until the day of the vampire apocalypse. And just like you said, Danielle, all that's been mentioned before. Yeah, and this guy's like, uh, cool. Where <laughs> is my partner? And we cut to Peter's, and this is like, this is my nightmare. Yeah. Like this body horror stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I have skin issues. She's I have having really a real bad, hard time. I have really bad skin allergies, and I'll get <laughs> hives sometimes. And this shit that's going on in her leg is like one of my nightmares sure, sure. to see this kind of stuff. See? It just really <laughs> just makes me very uneasy, yeah. And he's like, oh, no, she's fine. 
Like, well, he says she needs a rest. Right. But I mean, in so many words, he's like, no, we, we definitely don't need to check on this person right. <laughs> at all. I like how the guy's just like, okay. Yeah, no, I mean. I'd be like, excuse me. That, I'm going to go over here now. I mean, the whole time I'm reading the story and he's like, you know, doing this, he's like, where's my partner? Where's my partner? First thing I would have done, I'd be like, okay, fuck off, dude. I'm going to go look for it. Right, yeah. yeah. And you know? so he's just like, nah. Well, I think he's also not feeling good. No, too. I mean the guy. Yeah, the guy is oh, like, yeah. nah, Thomas. it's fine. He's very much. He doesn't have any. His priorities are out of whack on this one. Yeah, what do you think, Matt Strackbine? What's going on here? I think I mentioned this last episode. This is more BPRD in the street. Yes. Yeah, yeah. love it. Yeah, love it. There's no Johan, no Abe, none of that. Yeah, uh, exactly. But they talk about him, and that reminds me of something that Scott Alley referred to, talking about short stories, uh, one-shots, the the mini-story arcs. Yeah. He called them branches. Oh, and okay. So these stories are very much their own, while also moving the overall story along. Yeah. And, and of course, taking into account everything that's already come to pass like we were just talking about land of the dead they've shown things from seattle you know they also add like new stuff right right and that could be story threads or characters and he would refer to those as buds on the end of the brand okay i dig that i dig that yeah and so this is like the bud theory so the theory is that some of those buds like iosa right uh, yeah that's a perfect example really some of these buds will bloom while others may not, though they each serve in making a dense universe. Yeah, yeah. Mm, That's beautiful. So, That's beautiful. So not only would it be like nearly impossible for us readers to predict what these guys have meticulously planned out, but it offers what he referred to as a more textured world. Yeah. Sure, it's like, definitely. I mean, I it's a it. storytelling technique that I think is unique to the Hellboy books. So, you know, back to this story we have uh, two seemingly random new characters. And I, we've seen Vaughn before. Right. But in like a minor role. Sure. I think. And are they just for those stories or or are they meant for something more? Sure. And, and you just got to love the way these stories give readers an opportunity to, not only are we investing in the character and the story because it's written so well, but we're also investing in their potential for more down the line. Yeah. Sure. But yeah. then, like you said, uh, you've also got this overall kind of like the mythology right. going right. on. And so like you've got the um, I hate to sound like a broken record because I, I keep coming back to this very much feels like an X-Files episode where you go into the situation and you're not sh- quite sure what's going to happen, but you're kind of invested in what's going on. And it's it it reveals this overall. And then you've got the. You've got the the monster of the week kind of a deal, but then also behind it, it like you said, it propels forward this, the mythology of it, which is the um, the Agru right. shit and all the vampire shit and all the <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Someone help yeah. me with the, what I'm trying to say. With, with well, this. I mean, is is Vaughn like a throwaway? Is right, he just being used here for something, or is he part of the overall canon? I mean, he's telling us his own personal history with the Bureau and sure. going on a mission with Hellboy. And that makes me think maybe he is going to be more significant, but there's no way you could tell right. yeah. why or how. And then, you know, the whole time, we're very much aware of what's going on in the world, although we're in this backwood 
location in South Carolina, this street level perspective is the best way for us to see what's going on in the world yeah. at the moment. Mm. And that's when I say overall story, that's what I mean. Hell on earth. Yes, yes, exactly. I think you got it exactly because that's what I was yeah. thinking is we really see hell on earth like it's showing all aspects of it. It's not just quote unquote the superhero side of it. Right. It, it's exactly. like it's like we're getting to zoom in and see more of the day to day interactions. Right. Whereas before it was almost like you're seeing kind of the big picture and you hear about stuff in like news reports. But this is kind of getting to see those little threads. Right. Right. Out. And honestly, as I was reading this the other uh, last night, I was just like, you know, I mean, it, it didn't even dawn on me until like towards the end. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait, there's no Abe, no Liz, no right, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just Vaughn and uh, Peter the whole time. This right. is really the only other thing I've ever seen that could compare to the weight of, of something like what the X-Files did. I would love to see. I would love to see a fucking show. Yeah. Of just BPRD shit. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Here with Thomas and Vaughn, Thomas is still obsessed with this old vampire. He wants to talk to this old Madeline Rose vampire. And so that's the old grandpa, right? That's the one that was like I would uh, in so. the corner right. or whatever. He's all mummy looking. Throughout the interaction, Vaughn keeps trying to use his walkie, but it's not working. And they hear this loud moaning outside. And so Vaughn asks if it's Peter's. I should see her. Well, he it, keeps he keeps coming. The guy keeps coming back to his book. He's like, "Oh yeah, well my book's been stalled for a few days because um, you know that's what I'm worried about." Is oh right, and the this. boy hasn't come back. Yeah, he, the, and the fog and all this stuff. He's really only relating everything back to the fact that he wants to finish his. <laughs> he keeps book. trying to redirect it back. And to And the that, guy's yeah. like, "Dude, forget your fucking book for a right. second, like." And so that's where they hear the fog coming in. They hear this sound, and it's it's actually the fog. Um. Is the fog ghosts? We'll talk more about that. Yeah. So, you know, Vaughn tries to redirect him. He's like, this vampire stuff is interesting, but I'm guessing you haven't seen what's going on in the world. Those mushrooms gave off readings that suggest a connection to some other recent events worldwide. And, you know, this is where we kind of see how much Thomas is out of it. Yeah. Vaughn tells him, well, the last few months we've seen volcanoes, tectonic shifts, some stuff, a whole lot of... The mushrooms only appeared about a week ago, Thomas says over on the hillside where they've been putting the bodies. If the vampire... And so he starts talking about the vampires yeah. again. And so Vaughn kind of loses it a little bit. He's like, what? Never mind your goddamn book. These well, no, guys have been he killing says, people up here. He says, I could find another interview subject. Right, yeah. That's what <laughs> he's thinking breaks about, it from. That's yeah. what makes him snap is he's like, you're just, just thinking about who you're going to interview? What is wrong with you? And then, so it, like you said, he, the guy's like, oh, but they're killing people. And he goes, yeah, they are vampires. Right, they, yeah. That's what He's they very do. nonchalant about this whole what thing. What did you think they were going to fucking do? I think what they need to focus on is it would sound like the green wave is outside. Sure, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so finally, uh, and, he, and he mentions, you know, the crosses keep the fog out, uh, you know, and so Vaughn's like... Um, <laughs> You know, he's like, uh, I know it's, I know how it sounds, Agent Vaughn. The fog must be connected to the vampires in some way, but I'll be damned if I can figure it out. Whatever it means, something is different, and it's bad enough that I have considered leaving. And so they hear the moaning again, and he's like, you know, are you sure that isn't Peter's? And he's like, we'll go check on her. So they go check on Peter's, and it's even worse, right? She's fucked. Oh, man, and she's got, like, all this stuff all over her arm now. It's kind of like that goo stuff that we saw the little kid have yeah, when he touched that thing yeah, in the ground. Fucked. 
And so Vaughn's like, she's dying, you know. We're over here talking about mushrooms. And he's like, I got to get out of here. So again, you know, Thomas is trying to say that they can't get out till the morning. Well, he's trying to get her out of here too. Yeah. He's trying to like yeah. save her and... I don't think there ever was a chance to save her, even if he had gotten her directly. Well, no, but he doesn't know that. No, no, no. I know. I mean, you know, him as a character, like, yes, we've got to save her. Definitely got to try, but... And Vaughn, he says he's a, he'll go deal with the vampires, but he starts reeling from the effects of the fog again, and he passes out. Well, I like this moment where he goes, oh, yeah, you don't want to go, you don't want to go out there, and he goes, the fuck? <laughs> he's looking out the window like, what the fuck? Yeah, he sees those shambling shapes again in the background, and all of a sudden, they he wakes up again after passing out to this loud banging, something's banging on the door, and you can see that Thomas has propped up like a big cross on the door. And the guy, uh, he gets his gun out, and the dude says, hey, what are you going to do, shoot the fog? Right. <laughs> He's like, no, there's there's something moving around out there. What is that? And Thomas is like, whatever's out there, it can't get in. And then there's this loud bang, right? And we see this kind of shape that's banging on there. Vaughn says to Thomas, if she dies, it's going to be your fault. And Thomas doesn't like that. He kind of gives him this really ugly look. And so Vaughn's trying to go outside. He's moving the cross out of the way. They start fighting over this. He's like, no, we're safer in here. And as soon as he says that, we see Peter. She bursts through. And now she's all she's fungus all monster. Yeah. yeah. So it looks like she's been taken over by whatever fungus. We can see her arm is all like, and that on her leg where it was exposed, it looks like she's got a big thing down there. She goes after Vaughn and they have this fight here where he's trying to like hold her back. And Thomas goes and he picks up that big cross and he holds it against her. And that kind of is effective in drawing her back, right? Yeah. So, okay. So this is the weird part. So he starts driving her back and as she falls backwards is... Is all this, like, stuff coming out of her, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was assuming. And it's kind of, like, flying through the air. And it's such a weird effect, too, how they're able to do this. Oh, it's definitely the fog. It seems like ectoplasm of some kind. Right, it's kind of got that effect. And then... Because it's it's got a sloshy... Right, liquidy yeah. kind of uh, quality to it. I I assumed it was ectoplasm and that she's some sort of a vampire ghost zombie ghost yeah and so that stuff in the air the liquid it she's takes, a slimer it she's takes a, slimer. a form yeah it yeah. takes this form and that starts attacking them and so Vaughn starts she is the green wave yeah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, know. yeah. I know that sounds like a joke no but yeah that's yeah sure of course that's she what... has become this like yeah. liquefied green thing with a face yeah right? she's literally it's the green funny. wave yeah that's yeah. i think that's cute that they the local elementary school is like well <laughs> yeah everyone's afraid of this well that's the good mascot <laughs> and i love this shot as vaughn is shooting at it and we can see kind of how the holes that it's making in the bottom um i just love this page too the the color on it the contrast when they start shooting the gun is just really good and so yeah he's we have several panels where he's fighting this thing and it's like sloshing around and it's just a really cool effect you know the the way that they did this so Vaughn, he picks up one of these many crosses that are around and he holds it up and it's effective. And then that thing like sloshes through the wall. I love that too. Like it can pass through, yeah. it can like phase through the walls or whatever, go through all of that. Well, it looked like it went through a crack in the wall. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. So outside they can hear like some screeching sound. And so Vaughn asks Thomas about the vampire apocalypse. The hill, Thomas says, it's full of vampires sleeping, hundreds of them. 
Cole and his family bury their victims in the earth in preparation. There are vampires so active all around the world doing the same thing, quietly, so no one notices. Oh god, is it happening now? And so he thinks it's like, this is the vampire apocalypse, right? Is this what will wipe mankind from the face of the earth? All these victims, these sleeping vampires, they were intended to wake up on that particular date set up by those vampires in Europe. I thought it would be different. But is this it? I didn't think the fog had anything to do with it. And so Vaughn, he starts putting on his hazmat suit. He's like, we'll take our chances out there. He throws the other one at Thomas. He says that they need to get to the helicopter. This won't do any good out there, Thomas says. If you walk onto that hill, you won't make it halfway down. And I like this little effect as they're talking like some of that green wave stuff starts dripping from the ceiling and then in the next panel it comes through again and it attacks thomas and it like gets on him and i really love yeah. how they do this it's so cool how it's like kind of transparent and you can see how it's like overlaid on top of him it's like possessing him or whatever and then you know we mentioned the kerosene lamps earlier and so in all the struggle one of the lamps goes down and then now everything's on fire so it's like quickly just spiraling out of control and he gra- he like grabs a cross and runs out into the night as it the house burns down oh before that he grabbed that kerosene um container and threw it into the fire yeah 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 and i really like the effect of that too because that's kind of what it looks like if you've ever seen like youtube videos where people accidentally set things on fire and then they throw the kerosene and like and then have you ever seen videos where crazy shit like that happens and then they end up sending more things on fire every fourth of july yeah yeah (laughs) so this one time when i was in high school i was playing with hairspray and fire and Oh, no. So when you pour liquid hairspray onto fire, it shoots up the bottle and it flies off like a rocket. In yes. Your hand. And then you set your brother Jeremy on fire. Oh, no. And you're like, oh, my God, my books. And he's like, your books, I'm on fire. <laughs> oh. And um, and so, yeah, this green wave, it totally desiccates Thomas, right? You can see, like, his remains are there. Probably made it stronger now or whatever. It's like it um, sucked his life force out of him. Right. And so Vaughn, after he throws the kerosene can and everything goes up, he escapes out of the house. We kind of see the aftermath of it. I guess he left that burning house and he walks up and we see that house that we saw earlier where those vampires were living. They were all watching TV. Vaughn uses the cross to break into this house. And then when he looks inside... Oh my god, this is crazy, right? So like this... Uh, was not expecting this. <laughs> yeah, so the fungus thing, like, it overtook all these vampires. You can see that they've all been covered by the fungus and they all look dead. One of them, their head is even all covered by the fungus. And I love this idea that, you know, the vampires have their own plan, but all this other shit, all this other hell on earth stuff with the frog right. monsters and the fungus is fucking up that too. Yeah. It's like destroying everything. And so you're getting these weird interactions between two right, yeah. seemingly evil forces in this in this universe. You know what I mean? I just think that's really interesting that the way that they've kind of put these two together. Yeah, that, that also makes it even scarier because it's like, look, it doesn't fucking discriminate. Right, yeah. It's just going to take over absolutely yeah. everything. Even those, yeah. the, even these seemingly immortal people. It's going to, it's so alien. It's so different that even the things that would be considered exceptional in the human world are overtaken by it, which is, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty daunting. 
and Von bursts in there and he finds Cole, that little kid, and he's the one that touched that thing, so he kind of set this whole thing off, yeah. it seems like. And he's got some green thing like bumping in his it's like a green heart thing yeah or... i was assuming it was his heart it like it got in and it infected his heart and, oh right and, yeah and i love this vaughn is just like what the hell did you guys do and he just stabs cole through with this cross um right in the heart killing that thing and then on this very last panel we just see that he set everything on fire and i just love this expression on him as he walks away it's just like it's just so fucked up. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? This this thing that he went through. And yeah, just like you mentioned, Aubrey, like there are no other, any of the main characters in here. We just get two issues of just like this kind of like side story. That's really kind of brave too. You know what I mean? I yeah. think to trust that your readers will. Matt, were you ever like, oh, this doesn't have, this is not picking up the main, you know, storyline or how, how did you feel when you would get kind of these issues like this? My first reaction was, a result of me being too reading like too many mainstream comic books. Ah. Uh, In hindsight, I I hate that reaction, but yeah, I was like, wait a minute, where's the bureau? Why are we doing this? Yeah. I don't think I ever complained about it because ultimately I'm along for the ride, but I do remember by the end of this second issue, I remember thinking, okay, Vaughn's just going to run for his life, but then he goes to that vampire's house. Yeah. He's like, yeah, no, you're the, right, because the threat is not diffused. I, I do have to keep going here, you know? Yeah. And, and so I was like, all right, well, he's a total badass. I mean, this guy, he's as good as any of the main BPRD agents in that way, right? Sure. He's like Abe yeah. Sate. Because you know how, like, Abe became, like, uh, more aggressive and action-oriented? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Nah, this is the exact same thing. It's just he's not a fish man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for pointing that out. So, yeah, he really does go forth and do the rest of the job, you know what I mean? Um, uh, And there could have been something else in that house, you know, that he had to fight or whatever. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, he went to the source of the problem and destroyed it. And, yeah, that's great. At least tried to cut it off there. I also found this story rather interesting because it's like the mushrooms somehow combined with the vampires to create like a vampire. Right. Okay. Yeah. We didn't talk about that. Yeah. It's like I get to the end and I was like, oh, wait, that's the end. You know, and then I had to go back to the very beginning to look at the vampires and be like, oh, that's right. He fucking that slimy shit got all over him. And then. Right. It was a product of those vampires being buried where all the mushrooms were. Yeah. And I find that intriguing because it's uh, it's like something you were saying earlier, like the vampires have their plan, but this thing is fucking everything else up. And right. it's just like... Creating new monsters. Yeah, I mean, vampiric fog. I've never heard of it. It's, <laughs> it. it's a wonderful invention. Great. So now we're going to go on to our next story. This is BPRD, Hell on Earth, The Transformation of J.H. O'Donnell. This is a one-shot published in May 2012. It featured a cover by Max Fumara, who we last saw on BPRD 1948, with a Year of Monsters variant by Mignola. Written by Mignola and Ali, art by Max Fumara, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. And so we open at the BPRD headquarters in Colorado, and I really like this interaction that we have here with Agent Nichols, who we met in The Long Death, and Agent Raskin, Pauline Raskin. We saw her in Dr. Karp's Experiment and The Ghoul with Hellboy. And I think this moment is just very well written where, you know, she's trying to buy something at the vending machine and she needs money and uh, Nichols is like, whoa, they cut your salary? <laughs> and she's like, how? She's like, how was British Columbia? And he's like, cold. And she goes, and? 
classified. And she's like, give me a break. And he's like, classified, ma'am, all due respect. And she's like, I trained you. Now look at what they have me doing. Take pity on an old lady, Nichols. Tell me a story. And I was like, how is she an old lady? But then I looked and it's been 20 years since we saw her in Dr. Carb's experiment and the ghoul. So 20 years have passed between when she was an agent and now she probably just works in the office. And you also, we have friends who are in their 40s now and they're all, sometimes they like to refer to themselves as old, even though they are not old. Oh, right. So yeah, she's calling herself old. Yeah. Yeah. I do that all the time, yeah. even though I'm not old. You're I'll, not old, I know, but, but be, you'll say that you're old. Yeah, I'll be like, so, oh, I'm you're so old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and so you call yourself like you're like, ah, oh, have take pity on an old right. man. You know, give me a coffee. You know, and so it's a very. I think that that's a very cute. Uh, yeah. It's banter. Yeah. It's office banter. And and I just like when they put two characters together who yeah. have never been together, but we kind of know them. And well, then they know each other. Like they're friends. Yeah. Clearly, they're friends. Well, she says she trained him. Right. Yeah. And one thing I was reading that was interesting in the sketchbook is they were Fumara and James Heron were both doing Agent Nichols at the same time, and they were kind of defining on what he would look like. So they were passing art pages back and forth cool. to each other to make sure that Nichols looked the same in both of their books. And as they're talking. Talking, they overhear Professor O'Donnell. Yeah, Professor O'Donnell. And he's talking to another scientist. My fave. And this other scientist, I don't know if we ever hear her name, but in the sketchbook, they call her Doris. Okay. And we've seen her a couple times before, drawn by Guy Davis. O'Donnell, he mentions the Salton Sea monster and how the Russians will want it. Could two of them communicate? You don't realize how long it's been since Ogdraham walked the earth. I mean, actually walked. And I like <laughs> yeah. how he's doing that little motion with yeah. his fingers. Yeah. yeah. He's got. He's very communicative with his hands. Yeah. His hand gestures. And, and Fumara does such a great job drawing this guy. Yeah, I love think he it. Does, I think it's really good. And so I've got some things. Okay, because there are a lot of there, I, yeah. there was a lot of research for and this. And this is so. actually stuff that I have researched independently, like over the years that I've already. Know about so he's just throwing out all of this stuff. He's yes. just like he's mentioning Paracelsus and he's mentioning the John D and the Enochian script and all of this stuff. And it's Alphabet like of the Magi. Yeah, and so it's like okay, well, it, you know, I, I obviously don't have time to break all this down. That would be a completely separate podcast. But um, so Paracelsus, he was in the 16th century and he was like, Hermeticism is great, and as we all know, Hermeticism was kind of the early, you know, version of like what science is now basically and so that's kind of the um that's kind of where science sort of came from and that's um hold on i have a note on that too just what i wanted to say really quickly about that was um you know there's a store a retail shop it may be closed now in uh soho in manhattan yeah named after that guy oh wow Oh, okay i would love to visit that and this is where all of the rock stars like aerosmith and all those guys and the stones used to get their really unique like nice. clothing that they would wear on stage. That's awesome. And the lady that owned it is Luxor Tavella. Wow. And, oh, awesome. and she was she was known as last of the Soho Bohemians. And you gotta look into this lady because she is amazing. Nice. So when I first met her, she was coming out of the back room. And I this place did not look like a store. It looked like a storeroom. And I thought Maybe they weren't even open. (laughs) And this lady comes out of the back room. She's maybe four, four and a half feet tall. She has on like caked on white face paint. Wow. With like with like blue warrior face paint marks over her eyes and uh, really long hair like down to the floor. And she has a very high pitched voice 
her being such an older woman. And she started like showing us around. I was with a coworker and she started showing us around. And my coworker was like genuinely freaked out. By it. <laughs> Whereas so I was pumped. like, I would be so into it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, no, this is the coolest. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they called the place Paracello and awesome. it was named after this guy. Nice. So uh, Paracelsus, a fan of Hermeticism, is this just tradition that was based upon the writings of. Uh, Hermes Trismegistus, I can't pronounce that, but it's his thrice Hermes or whatever. Okay. Anyway, he, a lot of people considered him to be like a really wise pagan guy, pagan prophet guy. The only reason that this is important is that uh, Hermeticism, people attribute that with the development of like what science eventually became. So like you test things out with various experiments, right? And so while a lot of this stuff didn't turn out to be very accurate, like, oh, the four elements are air, water, earth, and fire, right? right? right. But that eventually became, you know, like the, the table of stone, elements yeah. and all this stuff. So like people, so anyway, so then, so this guy was kind of like a pioneer Paracelsus. He was like, hey, medicine is important. We need to like research this. He ended up being like, quote unquote, like the father of toxicology, right? Right. And so he contributed a lot of, of stuff to medicine. He was like, but he also devoted a lot of time to like astrological talismans and stuff. And so he invented this alphabet that was called the alphabet of the magi, right? So it's like angelic names, you engrave them onto talismans and that's that's going to help you somehow. And he he agreed with like the concept of like the four elements, right? But he he saw them as like, Oh, this is a foundation. We can we can build on this kind of a thing. So he was like the first guy to right. really kind of maybe not the first guy, but he was a very prominent guy to think about all that stuff. But he also he was like the alphabet of the magi is a thing, and they use basically the Hebrew al- alphabet to create these angels' names and and inscribe them onto talismans. And so it's um it's very interesting because then we're gonna talk about another thing, the Enochian alphabet. But anyway, so he's and just one other quick thing about him is that he. He didn't like it when people put more importance on, like, who the person was. Like, if you had an important name or an important title, he was like, look, all that matters is, like, the knowledge that this person is presenting. So he spent a lot of time with, like, you know how your barber used to be your surgeon or your blacksmith used to be your dentist or whatever? He would take all these people, you know, the alchemists and the people in the apothecaries and the barbers and the blacksmiths and the the farmer surgeons or whatever, and he would take them in and he would be like, hey, the, you don't have an academic career, but you do have a lot of practical knowledge and experience that we can, and that makes you better. So he was kind of right. engaged in this. And I kind of see like Professor O'Donnell as this sort of following oh, yeah, in their yeah. footsteps kind of a deal where anyway, so then he mentions Enochian and I, I think we've actually talked about Enochian before, but Enochian is this like, kind of a cult thing where it's another angelic language, right? But uh, this is actually goes even deeper. Actually, Terrence McKenna did a whole entire lecture about John Dee and Edward Kelly. But John Dee and Edward Kelly, they're pals. And they're, Kelly was like purported to be like a medium, right? For like spirits and shit. And he could like talk to ghosts or whatever. And he worked with Dee on this scrying stone called the Shoe Stone. Right. And they would kind of derived this language out of they were talking to the angels and stuff and so it's actually really interesting because they the concept of this angelic language was just real popular at that time and so because if you could talk to angels 
you know, that's a fucking thing. Because, like, the language of angels is, like, supposedly how God created the universe and all this stuff. And so, let's see. Like, they kind of talk about that a little bit. They say 32 words were spoken or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And universe. so, it's it's a whole thing. And so, uh, but you could, there's a whole thing about, if you really want to get into it, Enochian is a whole thing. You can go into this huge knowledge spiral on the internet about about d and kelly if you want a fun way to spend a few hours looking up lectures and listening to that or looking up articles and reading them it's pretty interesting you know i'm not gonna say like the shoe stone is they actually saw or heard or whatever but it's it's super interesting and so i'm starting to feel like o'donnell you guys are looking at me like all right (laughs) But uh, I'm just as obsessed with this stuff as O'Donnell is, so I guess I feel kind of a kinship. Every time I see this character, I'm like, yes, that's my fucking, that's my guy. It's my main man, <laughs> O'Donnell. And we also mentioned John D. in Witchcraft and Demonology. Yeah. That was the book that Broom was reading. So Broom was reading all about John D. in that one, too. But he's getting pretty agitated, right? So he's... he's He's like, I got to talk to Dr. Corrigan right now. And, and she's like, okay, well, Dr. Corrigan, you can see her pretty soon. And he's like, I want to do it right now. And it's I very... I love this animation, yeah, yeah, of him. Well, he's like, like get her on the phone. He's mm-hmm. like, she's like, oh, she's back. You can see, him after, see her after lunch. Right. <laughs> right now, let's get you back to your room. Time for your medicine, Doris says. Going down, Nichols jokes. And Raskin says, that's not funny. It's sad. He actually started as a consultant back when we were in Connecticut. He was an expert in ancient languages with a special interest in the occult. Hadn't meant to make a career of this. He used to teach at Columbia, and Broom would call him in every once in a while. Right around the time I started, that would have been over 20 years ago, an old necromancer named Alessandro Divizia heard of him. And so Divizia... This was one of those names that was in witchcraft and demonology. These were one. Of, this is one of the guys that Strobel, I guess, had encountered but didn't agree with. And at the time when we read witchcraft and demonology, I was like, "What is this name? This I don't understand." But it was a fictional name, and it was for this character. So that was referenced earlier. He had just died, and he was supposed to have this amazing library. And Broom had been wanting to get a hold of it for years. Broom couldn't get away, so he asked O'Donnell to check it out. Fortunately, it was a slow week, and so they sent Hellboy along. So she explains what happened, and we get this flashback to Bradford, Pennsylvania in 1987, and here we see Hellboy and O'Donnell, and O'Donnell's super pumped yeah. to go into this library. Well, O'Donnell's yeah. on a mission with Hellboy. Sorry, I'm kind of kind of geeked out at this, because I was. this is something that I personally... And he, I'm very here for this. Yeah, I, I'm here for the O'Donnell mission. And yeah, O'Donnell's super excited. He's really excited about this translation of the Sword of Moses with an appendix by Hollandus. And the Sword of Moses is a title of an apocryphal Jewish book of magic. And he's like a kid. He's like, come on, Hellboy. Let's go look at the books. He's very excited. <laughs> and it's just very, I'm into it. As they go in, they see all these artifacts they see like a little skull in a jar and all this stuff, and they see this painting. And so I want to thank uh, Mike Mignolo's art on Facebook. I actually posted this on there, and I was trying to figure out what painting this is. And it's Witch's Flight. It's an oil on canvas painting completed in 1798 by Goya. And so we've had a couple references to Goya already, so this is another Goya piece. It was part of a series of six paintings related to witchcraft acquired by the Duke and Duchess of 
Osuna in 1798. It has been described as the most beautiful and powerful of Goya's Osuna witch paintings. And so this was interesting because the symbolism of the painting is that it's a critique of superstition and ignorance, particularly in religious matters. So there's these like kind of three witches at the top and they're wearing these hats and they kind of look like those religious uh, hats or whatever, right? Kind of like what the Pope wears. Yeah, and then the pe- the guy under it you know, there's two people under it, and you can see it better in the actual painting, but one guy is covering his ears, and the other one has this cloth over, and so they're, they're trying not to see it. But it's supposed to it's supposed to symbolize ignorance, and then you can't see it because the painting is cut off, but on the other side of the painting over here is a donkey. And so the donkey is a symbol of that, too. So thanks so much, Alex Van Reswick, for giving us that information. As O'Donnell is looking through the books, I really love Hellboy's pose right here as he's, like, in the doorway He's just kind of like, all right, you know, get get on with it. But O'Donnell is, he says there's nothing valuable there, but there's still some really cool books. And yeah, he talks about the Mithras Liturgy with annotations by Agrippa. The Mithras Liturgy is a great magical papyrus of Paris, part of the Greek magical papyri. It's based on the invocation of the Helios Mithras as a god who will provide the initiate with the revelation of immortality. And Agrippa, he's an occult writer, and he's been mentioned with the Agrippa's... Um, yeah. What was that artifact? Wasn't it like a Agrippa's talisman or something, and he uses it to punch? Oh, right? right, yeah. Do you remember what story that is? And I think even Skeleton Crew makes a version of it. So Hellboy refers to him as Professor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how he refers to Broom. Sure, Perf- yeah. But he never called Kate Professor, right? Uh... Oh, yeah. So this, to me, like, he has respect for this guy. He's like an older guy, right? Right. And that, I I don't know if that was intentional, but whenever Hellboy says professor, it always makes me think of Broom. So in this case, I think he's like, he calls him sir earlier, right? Right, yeah. 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 And so I I, I think he has a lot of respect for this guy. And I'm not sure, do, do we ever see Hellboy interact with him? previous to this i don't know yeah you're right we've never seen hellboy with o'donnell yeah so i think it was important to note that their relationship is that way that that he sees this guy in a position of authority maybe right right he has respect for him yeah and so hellboy kind of goes off while o'donnell is looking at everything o'donnell hears a creak and this bookcase slides open and reveals this hidden room and we kind of see as we turn the page that hellboy has gone and dozed off in the corner i like hellboy sleeping on the couch there o'donnell finds this massive hidden library you can see that it's all overrun with cobwebs there's a lot of artifacts in there and ancient books i couldn't really make out any artifacts that we've seen before but it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the Marquis place. You know what I mean? There's just stuff yeah, everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. I see uh, there's a hookah in there. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. A well, spooky hookah. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then we also see like there's a case with like a body in it or something or some sort of like sarcophagus. And so, you know, O'Donnell, I love this panel with O'Donnell. He's so excited to find this. Yeah, you know, this who is the, wouldn't the, This is the real library. This is the gold mine in the house. All of a sudden, we see, like, behind him, all these shadowed figures appear. Right? So this is really That's creepy. They all start coming in. What he described, it could have been... Must have been a hallucination. And that's Raskin, you know, still relaying this to Nichols. And I love this panel where Hellboy wakes up. It's got that snort yeah. sound. It makes me think like he makes like a snorting sound as he like yeah. suddenly wakes up. 
and he goes looking for O'Donnell. He finds his desk, but O'Donnell's not there. And then there's just like all these great mood shots as these kind of hooded figures are moving around O'Donnell and he's looks all terrorized. You know, he's got his hands on his head and all this kind of stuff. And then this staircase opens in the ground. So that's never a good thing. Right. When something like that happens, we also see that Hellboy comes across the hidden library. And so this bottom panel, this is where I was thinking like, this is the moment, right? Because O'Donnell looks at them, and then one of them looks back at O'Donnell, yeah. and it's like he didn't have to go in there. No. Like I like that's this is the point where I wonder if his uh, his fascination right. kind of you know what they I were mean kind of inviting him yeah. into their circle into their club. Right, and so I wonder how much of that is voluntary or how much of that is maybe he's being pulled somehow by these spirits, or I don't know. Well, it's like a, oh, knowledge, too much knowledge. Right. Is, don't do that. Like, it's a very tale as old of, as time kind of a story. They're like, don't mess with this knowledge. You right. don't want the to go to the black school of oh, yeah. Satan and the goat man or whatever that guy's name was well also like she's saying that o'donnell said he never saw any of their faces but he swore that he somehow knew who they were right so maybe that's kind of part of the catalyst that got him to go yeah so she says all these names right these are the names of the people so john d we talked about abramillan the book of abramillan tells the story of an egyptian mage who taught a system of magic to Abraham of Worms, presumed to have lived from 1362 to 1458. And it says, This system of magic from the book regained popularity in the 19th and 20th century, partly due to McGregor Mather's translation, the book of sacred magic of Abramil and the mage, and partly its importance within the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, and later within the mystical system of Thelema, which is Alester Crowley and all that kind of stuff. And so McGregor Mathers, who I just mentioned, he's also one of the names that are in here. Cagliostro, he was an Italian adventurer and self-styled magician. He became a glamorous figure associated with the royal courts of Europe, where he pursued various occult crafts. Eliphas Levi was a French occult author and ceremonial magician. And then they also mention the Comte de Carvalho. That was that guy who was the, um, that is not a real guy, but he was referenced in witchcraft and demonology. He was um, the apprentice of Strobel who had that little familiar, remember? Oh, yeah. So that was that guy. So he's one of these guys. And then they also mentioned Dion Fortune. She was a British occultist, novelist, and author. She was a co-founder of the Fraternity of the Inner Light, an occult organization that promoted philosophies which she claimed to have been taught by spiritual entities known as the Ascended Masters. And so these are all the people that are there. So, you know, they're all people who have studied the occult. You know, Hellboy comes across the Hidden Library, too, and as he's investigating it, he kind of puts his hand on this book, and as soon as he does that, this body shatters this case that it was in, that sarcophagus that we saw earlier, and it's like a minotaur thing, right? It's got like a minotaur mask. Yeah. And yeah, I love this as it uh, breaks out of this thing and throws Hellboy aside. Just really good. And Fumara has... uh, I love how he draws Hellboy. He's been doing such a good job with this. Back with O'Donnell, we see him going down the staircase with all these hooded figures. And meanwhile, we're kind of cutting back and forth with Hellboy fighting this Minotaur. I guess this is still Raskin. She's saying that all these people are the greatest occultists going back hundreds of years, which I just explained all of them. All of them long dead. Men who devoted their lives to the study of the occult sciences. Just like Divizia, just like O'Donnell, 
right? And so we see these hooded figures, they all go down there around this coffin, and when it opens up, there's that guy, Divizia, inside. And he rises up out of this thing. He's kind of like hovering in the air, and they're all talking that frog language stuff, right? right? Yeah. Which we've seen so many times. Meanwhile, Hellboy just continues to fight this thing. And so I really like this. He kind of shatters the mask of the Minotaur. And then underneath, it's got like this husk under there. Well, it's kind of like a mummy. Yeah, it's like a mummified boar head or something like that. But just really cool. I really like that uh, that reveal. So O'Donnell is still there, and he's looking at Divizia. And Divizia raises his hands to his head, and he tears open his head, and there's like this weird bug face, right? And so we've seen a lot of these like bug kind of monsters in this other realm or whatever. Yeah, it was quite horrible looking too. Yeah, they uh, the way that Fumara does, you can see like his eyeball over here and like his jaw down here, and then yeah, really grotesque reveal. And so as this goes on, we reveal that all these hooded figures are evil bug monsters, right? They all come out into their bug forms and they're flying around. Well, they have like little tentacle faces. Yeah, and Hellboy continues to get thrown around by the Minotaur. They're continuing to fight, and all these flying bugs are just going around Old Donnell, and, you know, he looks, like, really terrified, and he's just being, you know, this is where, like, he's going mad or whatever, right? You know, all this, seeing this thing is kind of maybe driving him crazy. He finally screams out, and Hellboy goes to try and go into that hidden room, but the door slams behind it, and so he can't get in there. Well... Until he bashes it through <laughs> with the right hand of... We haven't got a, a right hand of doom. Boom, but he breaks through. I love this. So Raskin is still telling this to Nichols, and she says, Hellboy, of course, somehow ran into a monster and burned the house down. So he couldn't really tell what happened with O'Donnell or how he got out of the house. And so I love this panel, too, of Hellboy bursting out of this window. And we can see other other people watching. The next day, Hellboy found him wandering in a field a few miles down the road. And so when they found O'Donnell, he's saying all this weird language, too. Yeah. It was supposed to be a simple research trip. Broom felt responsible for what happened. He was responsible. But was he? Was he that responsible? I mean, O'Donnell played a part in this, too, right? Or what do you think? I don't know. It's kind of, I think you you have to take responsibility for the people you're in charge of right. when the stakes are this high. Well, remember, Broom had been, you know, eyeing that library for years, but he couldn't make it, so he asked O'Donnell to go from right. this place. Right. So that could have possibly happened yeah. to Broom as well, yeah. right? right? That's interesting, too. What do you think about that, Matt? Yeah, I think these guys take responsibility for a lot of stuff. The funny thing to me is that this story has, it's like one of the first times in a while that we've seen like a classic Hellboy formula. Story, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. But there's something much more sinister happening to O'Donnell. Yeah. yeah. Like, what? what's he supposed to do? You yeah. know, I mean, who? you send Hellboy into the field with a guy, and you think, well, that's the best backup that person could have. Sure, Hellboy, yeah. Right? And if they knew what was actually happening to O'Donnell, I don't think they would have taken all that blame on themselves. Right, yeah. right. That's a good point. I think they would... Yeah, they would have been like, okay, hold on, this is intense. You know, and it's funny, too, because they've got Pauline Raskin in this, and she was with Hellboy in Dr. Karp's experiment. Mm-hmm. And that was the same sort of thing, where he went into a room, yeah. and all this stuff happened, <laughs> and and nobody knew yes. that that was going... Like, I think to... Wow, to, yeah. To Raskin and the other agents, Hellboy was gone for, like, two seconds, whereas he had, like, a whole battle. Right. You know, so there's more than meets the eye and there's more that these guys have control over. 
So they can't be responsible for that. But I think it makes sense that they feel that way because Broom always feels responsible, especially, I mean, you think about Vampire. Right, right? exactly. And Broom felt horrible for that guy. But in this case, O'Donnell is still around. He's right. still there, yes, right? he's still so, there, yeah. So you got to deal with having to see the results of that case or that field mission every day. I think taking care of O'Donnell is the only real response you could possibly sure. have to something sure. like this, regardless of whether or not he was in over his head or whatever happened. You know, yeah. like, yes, he's excited about this. Of course he's going to be excited about this. You have to have known he's going to be super excited about this and that he was going to go in there thinking, I'm going to try and come out of this with as much knowledge as i possibly can of these books and all this library shit and so yeah like you said like broom sent him on this mission like ah, i've always wanted to check out this old library let's see what's in there they're taking on the responsibility of like i'm going on a mission that's possibly dangerous that i could lose my life or worse but at the same time if you're the one sending all these people on these missions right you would feel responsible i would feel like i had a responsibility to these people to take care of them you know whether they're doing it quote-unquote willingly is a whole other subject we could talk about free will until right, the cows right. come home i mean yeah. it's something that you know philosophers still have not there's no answer to that so right. it's something that i th- I feel like you know yeah you're, if you're in charge of these people you got to take care of them and that's something i wouldn't mm-hmm. i would feel the same way i would i feel terrible for for him i know that he's yeah he maybe in a way he brought it on himself by trying to seek out knowledge of the dark arts but at the same time like ah oh, man professor o'donnell he's just super excited yeah, about books man exactly come on yeah. he's just a nerd like all the rest of us yeah he's just a nerd and raskin says that he earns his keep he's still one of the top scholars in esoteric history and ancient languages and ever since that night he's been able to quote books no one's actually seen in 500 years Wow. We get this last shot of O'Donnell. You know, he's in his library. He's got books everywhere in his room. And he's looking at this book. And then all of a sudden, he just looks up. And then he, like, starts crying. But, like, we also get this cut image of, like, he's got one of those bug monsters underneath. Right? So this is one of those characters that we always laugh when he comes out. And we're like, oh, Professor O'Donnell. I'm going to be Professor O'Donnell for a second. And tell you all this nerdy stuff. But here we see there is, like, this really tragic thing underneath. You know, he's really being tortured by this by all this stuff i can say that um you know every time we see o'donnell i'm always curious about what happened to him and then and i was just thinking he just studied too much and his brain cracked right but then reading this story it was just like oh that's so much worse than i thought (laughs) but i don't think that there's any maliciousness in o'donnell even if there is like a bug inside of him I don't know. That's just my sure. Yeah. I, and I wouldn't take it literally as there is a bug inside of him. I just think that he's kind of. Well, I think it's almost like. Uh, but, well, I think that he did become kind of one of right, those right. people. But it's also like a PTSD kind of thing. Sure. Or almost. I don't know. I see it more of as a, as a like, like you said, he's being kind of tortured by this event that happened. And whether or not like I, I wouldn't say like you could literally peel his skin away and find a bug. Right. But I think that. There is a sort of a transformation that takes place as far as his, there's maybe an otherworldly, like a, we talk a lot about yeah. about um, dimensions cra- kind of crashing into each other and overlapping each right. other. And maybe in this world that the 
the writers and the the artists have set up there are like souls and there are other dimensions and there are you exist in in different planes at the same time or at different times and so like maybe on another plane of reality this is what would have been just strictly o'donnell is now kind of cohabitating with this like other worldly i don't know what i'm trying to say but right I feel like yeah it's no i get a, it yeah, yeah. no I yeah like... i i think he's afflicted i think when i was in high school somebody explained to me if you refer to somebody as a bimbo they seem like they they're saying stupid stuff and Mm. and everything they say is just silly but what's actually happening is they're having so many different thoughts at once that it comes out wrong (laughs) and so it's it's kind of you know it's it's unfair to just casually refer to somebody as stupid or idiot or whatever and you could see it in other appearances by o'donnell but also at the beginning of this story where he's his thoughts are coming so fast that he doesn't finish them yeah and then before and he thinks he's like landing on a conclusion but it makes no sense to anyone because he has no means of articulating it and the the thread in his mind has followed to a what he would consider to be a logical conclusion but to everyone else around him they're not seeing or hearing that conversation he's having with himself so it's a very so i don't think i don't i don't necessarily think it's a entirely a physical affliction right but it might be more of a on a different plane of existence on a psychological and i think aubrey was hitting the nail on the head i I think he's got an information overload yeah yeah and that all these other occultists or whatever have they like gave him an info dump and they put all of their memories and knowledge into him yeah he might be the last of their kind, sure. but uh, okay. I mean, the human mind is just too fragile to take all that information. So yeah, he can quote a book nobody's ever seen for five hundred years, but what good is it? Right. Sure, yeah. And no one listens to you because they just we write people off as like, oh, you don't make sense. You're crazy. And that's that's what Nichols was doing at the beginning when he said going down. Yeah, you know, yeah. like. Yeah, and, or, and or everybody like, else when they say, hey, time to medicate you right. at yeah. various times of day, which, by the way, when you take medication for brain activity, it's usually like when you go to sleep or when you wake up, it's not like all throughout the fucking entire day you're taking pills all day long. Like, mm-hmm. why are they giving him so many pills all the time? Right. It's kind of irritating. <laughs> well, I would hope that they would have a reason for, you know, it's just not like they're they're drugging him whenever he gets very they're like oh you're getting too upset time to give you pills like <laughs> right. all yeah. right that's a very and, it's a very well, surface like and, yeah and, he's nuts and broom isn't around so they've kind of grandfathered this in mm-hmm. it's like oh well they might not you know people like raskin know this story but not everybody else probably does yeah. i also want to say when um you saw the little fly thing under his face right first thing i thought it was a uh, baxter stockman oh tmnt oh yeah he does kind of look <laughs> like baxter stockman you're right yeah well, the cartoon version kind of looked like that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what the one I was referring to. Right, right. Are you serious? To be continued. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>